Zane and Tay Perkins came into my office a few weeks ago and they said, man, we just really feel like we need to pray. And I was like, you know, that's a really good idea. So what we've decided to do is, is we decided to have some, what we would call sunset family prayer times. And you can notice the dates and locations and that type of thing. One little quick note is, and it's my bad, I, I made a mistake, but on the 21st, we are having 5.30 only, not wow on that night. That is my bad. I'm sorry about that. But we're still praying from 6.15 to 6.45. And so I want to encourage you to come up. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to talk about praying. We're not going to teach about praying. We're going to do something really novel, and we're just going to pray. All right? And so I uh, want, want you to join us for that, and we're just really looking forward to those times where we ask God to bless our families, this community, and this church. Here's the sad reality, and uh, it, it, it makes me sad that we live in a land of addictions. You know, I, I wish it was the other way around. I wish that we lived in a land where we enjoyed just unprecedented uh, wellness and, 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 and just good, you know, just wellness. And, and now Monty's like messed me up. This is his fault. Just, just wellness and, and health. I'm grateful for those who work in the area to help people who struggle with addictions. Um, we have several in our church, and I'm so grateful for the work that they do in this community to help people to overcome addiction. But the sad reality is, is that we do live in a land of addictions. And, and for just a moment, just for a couple moments, I want to unfortunately take us into sort of the dark side of these addictions. There are addictions that are just obvious. The obvious addictions are, are food addictions. Right now we're charting about 42% of all adults deal with some sort or form of obesity. About 20% of our children struggle with obesity. There's also drug addiction that plagues our country. Right now, just, just alone in prescription drugs, 16 million people struggle with that addiction. There's alcohol addiction, which every day takes 385 American lives in one form, shape, or another. There's the less obvious or the hidden addictions that become, they're just as destructive as the obvious ones, but we don't really see those until they get chronic. I think about pornography, how it destroys relationships and marriages. Up to 65% of adult men and 18% of, a, of adult women, young adult women, will look at pornography at least one time a week. Gambling addiction. It says that 750,000 teens struggle, and from the ages of 14 to 21, struggle with some form of gambling addiction. And then there's the addictions that we, are, we consider socially acceptable addictions. The one um, most common to us is the social media addiction. This last October, or August, they came out with some statistics about this. They say anywhere from 13 million to 33 million, and again, I don't know why the, the wide variety of number, but 13 to 33 million people struggle in the United States with some form of social media addiction. Our average now is this, is that on an average, we will spend two hours and 27 minutes a day in some sort of social media. Some teens will also 
have go up to nine hours a day with this addiction. And then there's other obvious but socially acceptable. There's work and there's video games, there's shopping. And then we have the bizarre addictions. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched this show. If you do, it'll freak you out. And that's what we call strange addictions. It is strange. And we have addictions now. I'm not joking about this. We have people who would eat drywall, toilet paper, couch cushions, dirt, and even glass. I'm not joking. If you watch that show, it'll freak you out. We truly do live in a land of addictions. Some are obvious, some are not obvious, some are socially acceptable, some are bizarre. But there's one addiction that I want to talk to you about today that not only has a physical danger, but also has spiritual. And the addiction that I want to talk to you about today is what I would consider the rightness addiction. The rightness addiction. And you're not going to find the rightness addiction in the uh, Journal of Addictive Diseases or the Journal of Addictive Medicine, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I want to let you know the rightness addiction is old, as old as the family of man. And at one point in time in our lives, we have all struggled with the rightness addiction. But before we go on, it's really important for us to define what I mean by this rightness addiction. And you're probably wondering at this point, you're going, well, wait a minute, Bill. Are you telling me that wrong is right? I mean, what's wrong with being right? I mean, that's, that's sort of who we are, right? It's, I mean, what's wrong about being right? But there's a rightness addiction that I think you'll understand that is destructive to us. It is harmful to us, not only physically, but spiritually, and it goes something like this. It's a frame of mind or attitude of the heart. It's a spirit that says, I'm going to trust and I'm going to evaluate my own judgments on issues and attitudes and actions above anyone and anything, even God. Did you see that? This is the rightness addiction. It's the idea and the concept, again, of, of it's a spirit about us that goes, listen, I, I'm going to tell you something. I am going to decide what's right and wrong, even if it goes against God. It's the rightness addiction. And for the sake of our study, as we've been in this crosswalk study, it's, it's the idea of this is self-walk thinking, not crosswalk thinking. The rightness addiction is what we would call self-walk walking and not cross-walk walking. Let me, let me illustrate this rightness addiction with some verses from Scripture. It says, do you see the man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. There is a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it leads to death. And in two times in the book of Judges, you're going to find one in 17. You're going to find one in 21. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The rightness addiction. But I would like everybody to turn to Romans chapter 10. Get your Bibles out. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. I want to show you another verse about this rightness addiction. 
Romans 10, 1 through 3, it goes something like this. Brother, as Paul's speaking about his physical brothers, the Jews, he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I could testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal, their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Did you see it there? The rightness addiction? These people were real busy for God, but their busyness was not according to the knowledge of God. And because it wasn't according to the knowledge of God, they established their own righteousness, their own rightness addiction. And these are just some of the verses, but I want to really make it come home to us where we live. I want to share with you some some ways in which we struggle with this rightness addiction. It goes something like this. We make this statement, I know the Bible says that's the way we should do it, but I just don't think it'll work today. I, I know the Bible says that, but I just don't, that's really not how it should work, is it? Or how about this one? When we choose and pick and choose the commands we will or will not obey. Hey, listen, I want to let you know, I'll be glad to get baptized. But this loving your neighbor stuff, I don't know about that. And I want to let you know also, get your grubby hands off my money. The rightness addiction. Or how about this? I know the Bible says that, and this is the, I know the Bible says that's the way we should do it, but, you know, it just doesn't seem very practical. That's just, not, that's just not very practical to do it that way. Or how about this, is when we elevate points of doctrine or theology, when God has said very little or nothing about something. The illustration I use is I remember I was taking a Uh, my second year at Greek class, and and, uh, I remember one day we spent literally an hour to hour and a half. I don't know how long it go. It was eternity, all right, the discussion. And here was our discussion. Did the wine turn, did the water turn the wine when Jesus said it did or when it touched the uh, headmaster's lips? And after about an hour and 15 minutes, I wanted to drive my head into the desk The rightness addiction. Or how about this? You know, I think I'm okay. Now, I haven't been baptized in the Christ, but I think I'm okay. I think I'm all right. I've never obeyed the gospel, but you know, God and I, we have a really big understanding. I think I'm okay. Or how about this one? When we assign spiritual value to people over non-kingdom issues, like political parties or political issues. I know, I know that this is important to God, but honestly, it's just not very relevant to me. I I know this is important to God, but it's just not relevant to me. And in each one of those statements, and in each one of those, what we find over and over and over again is the rightness addiction. The rightness addiction. Now, here's what usually happens when we have an addiction. When we have an addiction, we go to rehab. 
which I'm so grateful for, right? When you, when you have an addiction, you go to rehab, and, and I'm grateful for everything that, that, that rehab does for people who, who struggle with addictions, but I want to let you know also is this, Jesus has not left us to this addiction. Jesus is, actually has a rehab for us when it comes to the rightness addiction, and the rehab he has for us is in the answer of repentance. Repentance is the remedy for the rightness addiction. The opposite of rightness is repentance. And and here's something startling for us to understand is this. Jesus wants our repentance rather than our rightness. He wants our repentance rather than our rightness. And so I want to talk a little bit about this repentance. I want to talk about repentance rather than rightness. And I want to share with you how I started this journey of this idea between repentance and rightness. I began to notice in these monumental places in Scripture... Every time there was this monumental thing happening in Scripture, all of a sudden you would hear and see the word repentance. Think for just a moment about John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes onto the scene. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of of Judea and saying this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. When the religious leaders came to see John, he warned them. He says, I want you to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist says, I am going to baptize you for repentance. When Jesus came onto his scene and started his ministry, he said this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when Jesus sent out the 12, he sent them out with this one message, repent, repent. And before we even get to baptism in Acts chapter 2, we find repentance. Before every monumental movement in Scripture, we always find the message of repentance. Listen to these verses that reinforce this. I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you will perish. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance until life. Godly sorrows in this beautiful text out of 2 Corinthians 7, which we're going to look at here in a little bit. It says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Or how about this, out of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, through Scripture, I mean, every every monumental movement in Scripture, you find repentance, and then you assign its value through Scripture. But I want to get down to the core of the difference between rightness and repentance. And we find that in its definition. If you were to peel back repentance, here's what you would find. You would find it would mean literally this. It literally means this. Have an other mind. 
It's this reorientation to a new perspective. And repentance is is something we do once, but we continue on doing that. There's the momentary momentary repentance, that point in time. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, repent. But then there's this continued life of repentance. And this life of repentance is this, is this ongoing state of mind is changing my thinking so that it falls in line with how God wants me to think and act. And the remedy to rightness is repentance. The Iron Curtain. In 1946, Winston Churchill talked about an Iron Curtain that fell over Europe. And the Iron Curtain, for those who do not know, was this political, military ideological barrier between the states of the Soviet Union, the communist states of the Soviet Union, and, and, it, and it sort of sealed off Eastern Europe and, and uh, the Central European allies so that the communist countries would have nothing to do with the non-communist countries. And, and this, it, this existed... This existed for for a long time. The Iron Curtain. But what's so interesting about this is one thing I found out about about this is that the communist countries who are anti-God, anti-religion, everything, here's what they called the new believers. The new believers in the communist countries were called repenters. They were called repenters. And what happened was this, is that these new believers were able to stand up in front of a congregation, and, and it, was, it was a risky thing to do this, right? It was communism. It was anti-religion, anti-Christianity. And literally, these people would stand up, and they would verbalize before the church all their sins, their re- and they would repent of their sins in this very extreme, dangerous environment. And thus... The communists called them repenters. And, and they were these professors and, and, they, and possessors of this powerful act of repentance in their lives. They were repenters. I love being a Christian. I love being called a Christian. But I wonder if it's time... I wonder if it's time that maybe we were known as repenters. Maybe we need to be known as repenters. There's this power to repentance. And and, and so what I want to do is I want to take us on a little journey here. And I want to... I want to talk about four truths that we have to hold on to in order to move us from this this addictive rightness to this this repenting people. These are four truths that we need to hold on to that help us to move from this self-walk thinking and self-walk rightness to a cross-walk repentance. 
Well, how do we move from a rightness to repentance? How do we stay there? Four points real quickly is this. The first one is this, is we need to walk in a way that allows God's words to have preeminence over all my thoughts, all my attitudes, and all my actions. Here's what happens with self-walk rightness. Self-walk rightness looks like this, is where all of a sudden I elevate my thinking and my thoughts and my views over that of God and His Word. And, and that's what happens. But you see, a, a crosswalk repentance means this. I elevate God's Word over everything in my life. Everything, every thought, every action, every view that I hold falls within line of Scripture. And we hold God's Word in preeminence. And when we do that, when we hold His, re, His, His Word in preeminence, then here's what happens is this. My only response is this. I come to the Word of God, and I come before it, and I lay my life, and I lay my thoughts, and I lay my actions, and I lay them before His Word, and they determine rightness. Not only do we walk to hold up the preeminence of God's Word, here's the other thing that we do. We walk in a way of godly repentance and not worldly repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. Uh, go there for just a moment. Turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. Self-walk rightness is defined as worldly repentance in this passage. And worldly repentance leaves regret and death. And what happens with this worldly repentance is the only sorrow that we have, the only thing we're sorry about is that we didn't hide it well enough, our sin. We regret that we got caught, not the sin itself. But I want to don't you to know if we're going we're gonna to get out of the grips of rightness, we've got to walk in crosswalk repentance. We have to have the way of godly repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, notice this. Look at verse 11 for just a second. As it talks about godly repentance. See what this godly repentance has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. You see, world, godly repentance looks something like this. I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll go wherever I need to go. I'll say whatever I need to say. I'll confess to whoever I need to confess to. I just want to be clean of the sin. And that's godly repentance. And godly repentance moves us from this worldly rightness. Not only do we hold God's word in preeminence. Not only do we walk in a way of godly repentance, but here's what we also do is this. We walk in the kindness of God. We live, we have our being, we love the kindness of God. Uh, look at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. I, I love this verse that describes the kindness of God. It goes something like this. However, when God, our Savior, made His kindness and love for humanity appear, He saved us. 
Not because of anything we had done to gain his approval. Instead, because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing in, the, in which the Holy Spirit gives us a new birth and renewal. And what are we supposed to do with this kindness? Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us what we need to do with the kindness. God, what do we do with your kindness? Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? forbearance and patience not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead us lead us to you to repentance you see the kindness of God is supposed to lead us to this repentant walk too many times though in our self-walk thinking in our rightness thinking it goes something like this you know it's just not that big of a deal it's just not that big of a deal. God, I know I may not be pleased, but he sort of, he just, he's okay with all of this. It's the spirit and the attitude found in Romans chapter 6 where Paul says, listen, you can't keep on sinning because you put to death sin in your life. What was wrong with the Roman Christians out of Romans chapter 6? They were, they were not understanding the kindness and grace of Jesus Christ. They were going, you know this kindness thing? That means that I know God's just sort of permitting this for right. No. Kindness leads us to a repentance. And finally is this. What's the fourth truth here is this. We walk in the reality of the final judgment. Now, notice this. Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, and he's preaching this sermon. And he gets to the end of the sermon, and he's looking around, and he's looking at all these idols, and he's, he's talking about the unknown God, and he has this wonderful presentation about God. And he looks at all the idols, and he says this. He concludes with this message. He goes, God may have overlooked this at one point in time, but he doesn't overlook this anymore. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why should we repent? For he has set a day when he will judge the whole world. You see, repentance, living in a crosswalk repentance and not a self-walk rightness, we understand this, that someday, someday, he will come back or we will go to him and he will judge. And all of our rightness that we've thrown up in front of him, all the rightness that says, I don't think God means that much to him or yeah, I know God wants me to do something else, but that's not that big of a deal. All that rightness will be stripped away as we look at him in the face of judgment. So we walk in this reality of his final judgment. And that's this movement, that's the truths that move us from this self-walk rightness to a cross-walk repentance. I conclude today by asking you to think about this. Here's what we know about repenters. You ready? They repent. I know that's novel. We should all go, oh, wow, that is so profound. Here's what we know. Repenters repent. And if there's one message today, here's the message is this. As repenters, we repent. 
If you've not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, today the call is this. Stop relying upon your rightness and repent. And be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. But for us who are Christians, here's what repenters do. We repent. It's what we do. It's who we are. It's our walk every day. We repent. Because we enjoy the beauty of repentance. I found this verse, Joel chapter 2 and verse 13. Listen to this. Rend your heart and not your garments. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Repenters repent. Repenters repent. Today, the invitation is simple. Difficult, but simple. And that is this. Repenters repent. And today, if you need help, in this movement from self-walk rightness to repentance. Come as we stand and as we sing.